What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, of course, we're talking about the Trump mob that attacked the Capitol on Wednesday. Later in the show, we'll ask Eric Foner for some historical perspective on that day's events, including the Georgia election victories. But first, Joan Walsh. We spoke with her on Wednesday evening. Of course, she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. She wrote the book, What's the Matter with White People? We reached her today in the San Francisco Bay Area. Joan, thanks for talking with us today. Of course, John. So, you know, I'm an American historian. I can say as a professional, nothing like today has ever happened before in American history. It's a terrible day for American democracy. What's your perspective? Well, you and I both know we were hoping to talk about the amazing democratic victories in Georgia. And, you know, I hope that is going to be the big lasting news that we will be discussing for a long time because it was epic and, uh, and just important. Uh, but, but this is, is just so depressing. Um, it's been very hard to watch. I, I think that uh, those of us who've been alarmed by this president's lawlessness for a long time uh, sometimes get mocked for Trump derangement syndrome. Um, even some on the left suggest that we, we're hysterical and you know never gave him the benefit of the doubt or whatever. Um, this is who he is and this is who his supporters or, or way too many of his supporters are. Uh, and, and, you know, what, what's toughest, well, it's, what's toughest for me is just seeing it in the first place, but uh, there have been, when I last saw 13 arrests today, when we saw hundreds, if not thousands of people storm the Capitol and break through, you know, break down doors and break through barriers and overrun lines of Capitol Police. 
how are they not being arrested now? They are being, I'm watching police lead folks out by the arm, down the Capitol steps, you know, have a good night, Mrs. Jones. What the hell is going on? Yeah, you have to wonder. And of course, they're calling it the greatest security breach in the history of Washington, D.C., at least since 1812. Uh, you also have to wonder why they weren't better prepared for this since on a normal day, it's very hard to get into the Capitol without your ID. You can't carry a backpack into the Capitol without being, you know what it's like in no. the Capitol. Exactly. No, I mean, you know, we, we've both been in there and, uh, you know, it's the people's house and it's good that we can get in, but uh, it's also good that it's not super easy and that there is security. And there are so many you know, so many staffers, cafeteria workers, people who who are in harm's way just by virtue of the fact that they went to work today. I just think that it, it should have been taken even more seriously than it was. And and there, there were warnings about this. I mean, I, I saw them, you know, all over Twitter yesterday. I just uh, heard uh, Congresswoman uh, Linda Sanchez, also from California, talk about her, the warnings that she had yesterday before she went to work. She told her husband where her will was. I, oh. I, I don't think I knew it was that uh, dangerous. The way that they were unprepared for this or underprepared is, is stunning. And the fact that they've now let these people go, night has fallen. Now they're running amok on the streets of Washington, D.C. Who knows, who knows how this story ends? We really don't know. Well, of course, there's a lot of debate among um, our uh, colleagues about what to call this, how to describe it. I don't like calling it a coup because this isn't really an attempt to seize power. I mean, they want to disrupt the Congress from confirming Biden as president-elect, but the Capitol is going to be clear to these people. In fact, I believe the sergeants at arms uh, on, on tonight, Wednesday night, declare the Capitol has been cleared. Yes. Tomorrow, they'll have a decent perimeter with the National Guard and the from the state of Virginia and D.C. Congress will reconvene, if not tomorrow, the next day. They will finish the job. So all going to happen a little bit delayed. On the other hand, we have our president going public after a lot of pressure, partly from his side, saying to to the people who stormed the Capitol, I love you. I love you. Yeah. Yeah, that was something. You know, I don't it's not I don't think we can call it a coup. I don't think by any you know definition of the word that that fits, except the idea that, you know, which everyone is now reporting, it was Pence who called, who ordered out the National Guard. Trump wouldn't do it. There's there's some way in which this does represent his attempt to hold on to power. It, it, it does. But, you know, he wasn't joined by the military. He wasn't joined by police. Um, he was joined by a bunch of of lawless losers with ugly tattoos. So it's probably not a coup, but it's something more than a riot. Yeah. You know, it also uh, we've often said Trump has been aided and abetted by the Republicans. And it's very interesting to see 
who has drawn the line at this point and who is still with him at this point. I mean, you're right. Pence has finally, Pence was the most sycophantish and worshipful person on earth, gazing at Trump. We haven't seen that gaze since Nancy Reagan gazed at Ronald Reagan. He, you know, he tweeted, I, I, I brought in his tweet, the violence and destruction taking place at the U.S. Capitol must stop and it must stop now. Anyone involved uh, must immediately respect law enforcement officers and leave the building. This attack on our capital will not be tolerated. And those involved will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Mike Pence. Well, that's pretty good. I mean, it's a little late, yeah. maybe, but it's a great thing for the vice president to say, especially since the president won't say it. Right. And of, and of course, Mitch McConnell has made some very sober statements about the task that they face today is the most important vote of his lifetime. And if the president-elect could be rejected by Congress because of unsubstantiated charges of fraud, that would be the end of American democracy. Mitch McConnell said that a little late, but better better late than never. Uh, on the other hand, there's other Republicans who are sort of in the apologetic mode. Yes. I mean, I, you know, t I think Ted Cruz is uh, standing by his desire, his plans to try to subvert the certification of Joe Biden's election. Uh, you know, I don't know what it's going to take for, for some of these people, but uh, it, it will be very interesting to see what happens when the voting resumes. It's supposed to later on tonight. Uh, I, I truly hope that some of the people who have expressed their, their, you know, uh, their intention to stick with Cruz, et cetera, will change their minds now that they've seen what, what this is really about and that this is what, and that this is what is coming for them. I mean, you know, another thing that happened today, uh, John, is that the uh, Georgia Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, had to be evacuated from the state capitol um, because there people surrounded it. I don't know how far they got, but you know, there, this, there were things like this going on in other states, including Republican states, including threatening Republican lawmakers. So this is coming for everybody. It's not, it's no longer something that only Democrats have to worry about. Uh, and and I, I hope that changes the equation. One of the horrible things about this is it is the perfect ending of the Trump presidency. He's been building up to this really since, since he went down the, the escalator the at escalator. Trump Tower. Yeah. Uh, there have been, we could chart, and many of our colleagues have charted the stages that have brought us uh, to this point. It's, we could, you know, it wouldn't be hard for us to go through that right now, but clearly all of Trump's career has pointed towards this ending that he would refuse to, to concede defeat, that he would rather bring the building down in flames around him. He's getting his wish, although it's not going to work. I mean, Congress will vote to that Joe Biden is the president-elect. And on January 20th, John Roberts will swear in Joe Biden. And it'll, it'll be, you know, we'll have a new, a new era will begin. We will have a new, a new era, but where will they be? You know, will they be outdoors? Will they be in public? Or will they have to be hidden indoors? I mean, that, to me, you know, seeing those anti-democratic, small d democratic, fascist morons on not just the Capitol steps, but then also 
on all of the uh, seats that have been set up for the little bit of an inauguration. There's not gonna be a big inauguration, but obviously given what we saw today, they were preparing to have socially distanced, I don't wanna call them crowds, but people of some sort, uh, you know, families, lawmakers, friends. Uh, I I've been to an inauguration, it, uh, you know, I was at, at Obama's first inauguration. It was one of the happiest days of my life, to be honest. It was a cold day. Very cold. <laughs> People were sharing their their little hand warmers. I remember that. I was very sad that we were not going to get to do that this year, but I was assuming that we were going to see some people get to do that. And now I don't know that we're going to see that. I, you know, I I I think these people are intending to put even a small public inauguration at risk, uh, and I, I, that that saddens and and frankly scares me. Well, of course, the authorities in Washington know how to do crowd control, know how to establish perimeters. We saw it this summer with Black Lives Matter, where you couldn't go a block in Washington without <laughs> without a checkpoint and hundreds of police in riot gear, you know, everywhere. And I'm sure you remember from the inauguration, there's checkpoints a half a mile away, a oh quarter of a mile away. Yeah. I mean, they know how to do this if they want to do this. And it's sort of shocking that today they didn't seem to want to. Yeah, it's very shocking. But you're right. You know, now they... Let's just say today they didn't take it seriously enough and, and not assume anything bad, like they didn't care. Um, and so you're right, they can, they can make this a secure inauguration and they can do it outside and we will see it. Um, I'm just a little rattled today. Sure, and I think we also have to ask, what is, what is this gonna do to the, to, for the base of the Republican party? So it, we have a huge polarization here between the fascist, ground forces, let us call them, and everybody else who used to vote because they believed in personal responsibility and tax cuts and less regulation right. and so on. I mean, a lot of those people were leaving the Republican Party anyway at this point. I think this is going to accelerate tremendously that split of them, the suburban moms um, and and the, the, the fascist guys uh, who, who would rather you know, fight in the streets against whoever they can find. I certainly hope so. I don't see how any suburban moms could stay at part of this party at this point, although I don't know how they stayed until this point. <laughs> um, but point. I, I think you really are seeing, you know, you're, you're seeing the base. And I, you know, I said this on Twitter earlier, and I'm sorry, but, oh, Hillary Clinton got into so much trouble for talking about the deplorables. Well, <laughs> they weren't all deplorables, but... Everybody there today is deplorable, uh, and and there are thousands of them. And so, you know, you just you don't know what percent they represent. The people who couldn't get there today, but are with them in spirit. Yeah. I mean, there's something really awful yeah. uh, in this country right now, and uh, it, we just have to stand up to it and you know outnumber them. And what did you think of uh, of Biden's uh, speech? He he condemned them and then tried to strike up high notes. I think that's his role. You know, it's not my role. <laughs> I don't feel like striking any high notes today. It would be hard. Be hard. <laughs> it's a hard job. And yeah. it's not hard. Fortunately, it's not our job. It's not our job. Uh, but it is his job. 
Uh, you know, I thought I thought it was a, a great speech. And I, you know, I think the idea of trying to get Donald Trump to do something he's never going to do, at, at least you still you still make the ask. You still say that is what people expect you to do. That is even what some Republicans expect and hope you will do. Uh, so, you know, I thought I thought it was a good sign, but uh, I, I'm not sure what he can accomplish right now. Yeah. And what did you think of the media coverage today? I was switching back and forth between MSNBC and, and CNN, and there were some high points, and then there were some people who really weren't up to the task, I thought. Should we just name one? I mean, I'm not employed by any of these networks uh, anymore. Uh, I was very disappointed in Chuck Todd because he, you know, there, there, there was a point when this was first getting going, and I, I, I have friends who were emailing there were some people who couldn't quite see what was happening. Let's just put it that way, or didn't want to believe that it was going to be what it turned into and were thus trying to minimize it and just be like, don't be hysterical. And, you know, uh, Chuck Todd was in that camp and was, you know, as Katie Turr uh, and, and Andrea Mitchell were actually reporting on, wait, I have been at that spot in the Capitol. So if they are there, this is terrible. And he would be like, let's just go to blah, blah. You know, he was just minimizing right and left for a full hour. Um, and, you know, I think that honestly for that hour, I give it to CNN. I mean, I think CNN, Jake Tapper took it seriously from the beginning. Uh, I don't know if it's because he spent more time in that building, those buildings. Uh, in general, the, the coverage was very, was good and very, very serious. Certainly the um, the pictures were unforgettable. I mean, this is this is where TV is at its best. Showing it's a, they, there's a there were a lot of cameras there. They had they they also had this the um, C-SPAN cameras inside the chambers. So uh, we got to see what was happening. And that's something that doesn't happen in totalitarian countries. And in that respect, the media really, the, the TV news really did their job today. They really did. And I think once they started getting those pictures, you know, the, the, the anchors who weren't on the scene had to, you know, take in what what was happening and what, and what they were seeing. Uh, and, you know, we're going to be seeing pictures all night because you're, you're now getting body cam footage from some of the police officers. You're getting, you know, video taken by some of the rioters uh it was really quite the malay inside the, inside the, those buildings um as, as we're getting more information so it, you know it's just it's it's unthinkable it's unthinkable yeah. well my hope is that tonight and tomorrow congress finishes its job perhaps some republicans will decide to go along with the certification of joe yeah. biden I this think a be... lot of them were already but let's hope that some leave the sedition caucus and join join the patriots we, we won't remember we will forget that they ever said they were going to do that terrible other thing and we'll welcome them uh to the side of justice and undoubtedly it's going to be a bad night for the police in washington these these guys like to fight and like to break windows and but but we're hoping congress will finish its job tomorrow biden will be certified and january 20th john roberts is going to swear in joe biden and this will have just been one of the worst days in american history yeah but it'll be behind us <laughs> joan walsh 
That was a great tweet, Joe. That was what you can call them fascists, but whatever you do, don't call them deplorables because that will get you in trouble. <laughs> John Walsh is national affairs correspondent for The Nation, reader at thenation.com. Joan, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you, John. My pleasure as always. For some historical perspective on the Trump mob attacking the Capitol on Wednesday, we turn to Eric Foner. He taught American history at Columbia for a long time. He's won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize for his work, most of which has been about Reconstruction. His most recent book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. We talked about it here. He's written widely for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Uh, thank you for having me, John. Well, we're taping this on Thursday, the day after two big historical events. I guess you could call them the bad news and the good news. I'm an optimistic guy, so I always like to start with the good news. So let's talk about the election in Georgia. We used to think the only way the Democrats could win statewide office in the South was with somebody like Bill Clinton or, or Jimmy Carter, a Southern you know, good old boy, but who was also a liberal, the Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff are something else, a black man and a Jew. Let's talk about that. Well, it is a remarkable uh, occurrence in Georgia, given the history of that state um, and as part of the Deep South, but with its own particular history, you know, uh, it's a state in which black people couldn't vote for many, many decades, starting around 1900. It's a state with uh, well known for anti-Semitism. Uh, the Leo Frank the um, uh, was lynched there uh, in the early 20th century. Of course, black people were lynched there also. Tom Watson, the famous populist, uh, at least of the 1890s, who had tried to build a coalition of poor farmers, black and white, later came back into politics as a extreme anti-Semite and, uh, and racist to rebuild his political career. So Georgia's traditions in politics don't lead directly up to having a black and a Jewish senator. Yeah. And it's a tribute to um, Stacey Abrams and others who worked with her to, as you said, they, they, they decided there was a new way to, to fight in these states, not to just go toward the middle and have uh, you know, moderate white Southerners as the only way to win, but to try to mobilize the black vote, get as many black uh, people as possible to register. Others, young people, people who have moved into the state in the last uh, decade or so, which is a lot of people, and they succeeded. Many in the Democratic establishment thought this was a recipe for failure over and over. But um, now that Georgia was carried first by Biden and then by these two senators, it's obvious that there is a Democratic electoral majority there, albeit obviously a narrow one, very tight races. Um, but I think it's, it is very good news. It's uh, unfortunate that it was overshadowed by the rioting uh, in Washington yesterday. So let's talk about that. Trump supporters attacked the Capitol, attempting to prevent Congress from counting the electoral votes and declaring Joe Biden the president-elect. I guess the first historical question is about the fact that 
what gets counted are the votes of the electors, not the votes of the people. Remind us why that's the case. We have had the Electoral College since the Constitution was ratified back in the late 19th, uh, 18th century. Uh, and it's in there because the founders didn't trust ordinary people to vote directly for, um, for president. So they. I, I must interrupt here. And when you say the ordinary people of 1789, uh, well, who are we? Which were the ordinary voters of that era who were not trusted? About- well, you know, actually, it's a little more complicated than one might think. Of course, women could not vote except in New Jersey, where they could vote until 1807 if they owned property, which most women didn't in their own name. Widows, basically. Um, African, free African-Americans could vote in several of the original states if they could meet the property qualification, which most of them couldn't. Uh, white men were the bulk of the electorate, obviously, but they had to generally meet property qualifications. So, oh yes, the people was a rather small segment of the total population. Uh, nonetheless, the founders, uh, not taking any chances, wanted to make sure that they weren't roused up by demagogues or, uh, you know, wanted to vote for people who wanted to redistribute private property or things like that. And so they stuck these electors in the middle. The people vote for electors and the electors choose the president, according to the old system. Today, it's supposed to be a formality. The electors are are pledged to a particular candidate and whoever carries the the state gets the electors, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, it can lead to a situation which put Trump into office in the first place. The person who gets the most votes doesn't necessarily win the most popular votes. I mentioned this not to go into a long history lesson, but that, you know, the, the situation yesterday was outrageous and horrible, obviously. But much of the commentary, which I don't blame TV pundits, you know, seemed to be resting on the assumption that until yesterday we had a you know, beautifully functioning political democracy in this country, and that that's our history. This is not us, we kept hearing over and over again. I'm sorry to say it is us, or at least part of us. Part of American history is represented by Abrams and those people who wanted to expand democracy and make it a more progressive force. Part of us are those who try to limit the right to vote. And of course, throughout our history, African-Americans couldn't vote for most of our history. It's not until the civil rights era that they could vote in the South, with the exception of Reconstruction, of course, for a few years in the 19th century. Uh, Women couldn't vote until the 20th century. Um, In other words, the suppression of votes is not something that was invented yesterday. We're a democracy, but there seem to always be people who think that too many people are trying to vote and they ought to be limited. Too many of the wrong kind of people. Wrong kind of people, poor, non-white, propertyless, et cetera, et cetera. I have a specific question about the elections in Georgia. This was a runoff yesterday because none of the candidates got 50%. They didn't get 50% because the Republicans were divided in the first round of elections. But why doesn't the candidate with the most votes win in Georgia? Why this 50% requirement? Yeah, well, that was put in in 1963 during the height of the civil rights movement. And the people who put it in were pretty explicit that it was meant to limit the power of black voting. In other words, 
the assumption was blacks would vote as a group. They would vote for maybe a black candidate or a white candidate, didn't matter. If there were a number of white, other candidates backed by white people, the candidate backed by blacks might slip in if you only need a plurality to vote. For example, in the first electoral, in the first Senate vote, Warnock got about 35% of the vote or something like that. Therefore, there's a runoff. In most states, if Warnock would have been elected, the person who got the most votes, even though it wasn't a majority. I think there's only one other state, one of the Dakotas that actually has this runoff system. So it's, it was meant to limit the power of black voting. Uh, and um, it worked the first time around uh, now, but in the, in the runoff, obviously, uh, Warnock, Warnock got enough votes to, uh, to win. Um, it's another example of how voting has been manipulated many times in our history through gerrymandering, through vo various forms of voter suppression uh, to try to uh, limit uh, black political power. I've been saying that Wednesday's attack aimed at stopping the counting of electoral votes was unprecedented in American history. But I'm having some second thoughts. Was I right about that or, or did I miss other efforts to overturn the results of a, of a democratic election? Uh, well, you, you're right that this hadn't taken place in the Capitol building up to this point. I, I don't believe any outside force invaded the Capitol since 1814 when the British burned the place, but in the War of 1812. But um, the, the overthrow by violence of democratically elected governments is not widely known by white people, but is certainly part of the historical memory of black people. During Reconstruction, you had events like the Colfax massacre in Louisiana, where an armed mob of white people stormed the courthouse in Grant Parish, Louisiana, and massacred a whole bunch of black people in order to take over the county government. Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, this is a little later, 1898, where again, an armed mob uh, forced the legally elected biracial government of Wilmington to resign. And it was like a coup d'etat. They took over. So in other words, that sort of thing has happened in our history. Uh, and uh, we should not forget it uh, in, in saying, well, this is not us. This has never happened before. The fact is that the democratic government hasn't existed for most of our history. For most of our history, black people couldn't vote. Uh, and it's, it's since the, you know, really since the Voting Rights Act in the South that you had functioning democracy. And even there, as you know, a few years ago, the Supreme Court overturned parts of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, uh, making it much easier for states to disenfranchise large numbers of people, which some of them are trying to do. In a tweet I called uh, Wednesday's attack on, on Congress one of the worst days in American history, and one person replied to me, every day of slavery was worse than Wednesday. <laughs> well, uh, true enough, if you were a slave, that is uh, certainly true. Um, I understand what you were saying. I think this day will go down, uh, you know, as a day of infamy, as President Roosevelt referred to December 7th, Pearl Harbor, or... 9-11, uh, which we all remember, or maybe the assassination of Kennedy in 1963. You and I are old enough to remember where we were at when we heard the news of that. Um, but yes, the person who made the point about slavery is um, 
making a good point. That's, yeah, that's what I know, thought. Good point. Good. I said, so I replied, good point. So yeah. then I changed, I changed this in another tweet, and I said, perhaps Wednesday was the worst day for American democracy. And somebody else replied just with a list. Wilmington, 1898, Chicago, 1919, Tulsa, 1921, Detroit, 1943. Maybe you should explain this list. Well, I think his list is going a little off the point. Tulsa, if you're talking about democracy, voting, government, Tulsa didn't have to do with that. Tulsa was a horrible thing. It was a massacre in which an entire black neighborhood was burned to the ground. But it it was just garden variety racism that they were enacting, <laughs> not an attack on democracy. Maybe that's a pointless uh, distinction for the people who suffered. Yeah. Uh, same thing with Detroit, which was a horrible uh, you know, example of um, violence against blacks. Um, Chicago race riot. Sure, th- this person has a good list of all the horrible racial altercations that have taken place or massacres in American history, but those that are specifically geared to the working of political democracy uh, are are fewer, although certainly in Reconstruction, there were many, many examples of black people being assaulted, murdered, intimidated in order to stop them from voting, voting, you know, Republican Party rallies being broken up by white mobs, white rifle clubs, as they called themselves in Mississippi. Uh, uh, you know, determining the outcome of an election. Um, Reconstruction taken as a whole and the overthrow of Reconstruction certainly shows that overturning democratic government is something that has happened many a time in uh, American history. Well, in your new piece for the nation, you conclude with a pretty, pretty interesting point. The United States, you wrote, spends far more on its military than any other nation, which isn't the way most people approach this question. But where, tell us where you go with that. Well, the military, which has a gigantic bloated budget, as we know, is supposed to defend us from enemies, particularly enemies abroad. We have a giant military establishment. Nobody can invade the United States. 9-11 slipped through, so to speak. But um, since the Civil War, there has not been military. Well, let's take that back. There was military conflict against Native Americans in the West. Let's say in the 20th century, there has not been military action on the American, you know, in, within the United States. But the fact is that this assault on democracy came from Americans. The military, you know, the military is looking out for Iranians or Chinese or Russians who are after us. But what about the danger within the the uh, erosion of democratic values as promoted avidly by the president? So I end by quoting the famous words of Lincoln from his Lyceum speech in 1838, that if destruction be our lot, we ourselves will be the authors. Clever guy, Lincoln, you know, (laughs) he said, let's not worry so much about some army invading us and let's worry about our commitment to democracy here at home. And indeed, right now, as in Lincoln's time, the danger to American democracy lies within. Eric Foner, you can read his new piece at The Nation starting Friday early in the morning. Eric, thanks for talking with us today. Nice to talk to you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, 
located in the heart of Hollywood with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.